Good evening to you all. I'm so glad that we're all gathered together here this evening to worship God, to grow closer with Him through Bible study, to grow closer with Him by, by finding Him out in the pages of the Word of God. Our goal tonight, uh, for, for those of you that are visiting, you may not know, um, right now in our Bible classes on Wednesday evenings, we've been studying through the book of Genesis. We've just begun uh, a five-year survey of the Bible, and so that's planted us in, in the book of Genesis to begin uh, this year. Now, we've been studying it on somewhat of a surface level. Uh, because of the nature of doing a survey of the Bible, it has not really afforded us opportunities to do deep dives into uh, reading between the lines of the text. Um, but it's, it's much more, it's given us a chance to, to look on the surface level to have a, a good understanding, a good survey of the book of Genesis, if you will. So this evening, what I would like us to do is to take that opportunity to do more of a deep dive into the pages of the book of Genesis. And what we're going to be searching out is we want to find Jesus within the book of Genesis. Um, it's not something that we typically think of when we read you know, Genesis. Uh, we don't often think about Jesus and how he appears to us on just about every page. But that is essentially what I want us to, to do is to, to change our line of thinking a little bit and to do much more of a deep dive into the text. In some senses, we're going to be reading between the lines. Um, now, any time we're reading between the lines, I, I want to exercise caution when we do that. And that is, we don't want to find things that are not in the text at all. Uh, we're not going to be practicing making things up out of the text or... or finding what we already desire to see in the text. Rather, we're going to look to the text and find a hidden image of Jesus in several occasions as we look through Genesis this evening. Um, I've given this a, a subtitle, this study, that it is a study in typology. Okay, Typology is kind of a, a big word, but it's a concept that has its pages or that has its foundation in the Word of God. First and foremost, I want us to turn to John chapter 5 and read verse 39. John chapter 5, verse 39. It says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. Now this is Jesus speaking here, uh, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, and, and Jesus is claiming that the Scriptures that they claimed would be what gave them salvation are the scriptures themselves that testified of Jesus. Now, Jesus is referring back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and, and, and he says that these scriptures are what testify of him. And so it's our goal is to figure out, now, how do the scriptures exactly testify of Jesus? That's exactly what we're going to be doing tonight. So let's talk about what is typology. Now, typology, um, if we were to get just a basic definition. I have a couple definitions that we can look at this evening. Um, typology is a, a type. Uh, it, well, a typology is this concept that there are types and antitypes. That's something some of us may be familiar with that concept, but it is essentially that a type is something that is a figure or an example of something that's coming in the future uh, and basically is something that is prophetic. Um, now, the thing that's prophetic, that it's, that it's a, an example of, is called an antitype. So we have these, this concept of types being the, the figure or the example, and then an antitype 
being something that is a future coming or a future revelation. That'll make a little more sense as we start studying this. Um, one thing I, I always... I play a lot of board games, and I love board games, but one thing about board games is if you read the rules prior to ever playing, you probably are going to be a little bit lost, and you're probably better off just learning the rules as you play the game anyway. Um, and so essentially, I think that if, if you're unfamiliar with this concept of types and anti-types, it'll make more sense as we start going through the lesson in much the same way that a, a rule book is not going to make sense upon first reading. Um, another definition, though, of, of typology, it's, it's that a type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment or anti-type is found in the New Testament revelation. So a type is, is, in some senses, a shadow of things to come. So, as I mentioned before, this isn't something that I'm making up or that, that some person has made up. This is actually something that has been planted in the pages of, of the book of the Bible um, by God himself. This is a concept that comes from the scriptures. Um, now, how do we know that? Because we actually are, are, we see the words type and we see the words anti-type used in scriptures. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So right there we see that Adam is a type of Jesus, the one that is to come. More on that here in a minute as, as we're going to get into talking about Adam shortly. We also see in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we see the word shadow used, and it's much in the same way that the word type is used. A shadow. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So this, is, this passage is in reference to certain holidays and feasts that were celebrated by the Jews under the law of Moses. And it says right here that these are a shadow of things to come pertaining to Christ. Another one that, that uses the term shadow is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It's, it calls the, the law, once again, it calls it a shadow of the good things to come. So, so this is something that has its foundation in scriptures. Otherwise, I don't know if I would feel comfortable being up here talking about this because it does kind of feel in a sense like we're going to be reading between the lines. But this is something that God has put in place for those that desire to, to deep, do a deep dive into the word of God. This is something that's in place that God has put for us to find. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 10 through 12 also speaks to this concept of typology. And if we will want to turn to that passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 10 through 12. And it says there, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicate, indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into." There's quite a bit to unpack in that section of verses there, but the main thing I want to point out is that oftentimes prophets, even as they wrote the pages of, of the books of, of the Bible, 
they were inspired by God. They were inspired of the Holy Spirit, and what they were writing was the Word of God itself. But a lot of times they didn't know what it meant. And they would inquire of God, what do these things mean, God? What am I writing about? But it, the message wasn't for them to understand. They might understand certain bits and pieces, but, but a lot of that had not yet been revealed until the time of Christ. That's exactly what this passage is saying, is that a lot of times they didn't understand the full message. Now, we do understand the message as it's, as it's re- revealed to us in Christ. And so certainly that's what we're going to be doing tonight is, is diving into this text in Genesis and finding pictures of Jesus throughout the book. Now, our first type that we want to spend some time on is, is Adam, okay? And um, one, one other thing before we get too far into the, t- the discussion of Adam and how he is a type for Christ is I want to point out that a lot of times types um, deal just in comparisons. So how is a type similar to the anti-type? But in many cases, a type is also a comparison and a contrast. Remember those old word problems we had in school where it would say, compare and contrast these two different things. And comparing and contrasting are are very different in nature. Comparing, of, of course, is showing the similarities between two things. And contrasting is showing how they are exactly the opposite of one another. Now, in many ways, Adam fulfills both, that he is similar in ways to Christ, and yet he is also very opposite in other ways to Christ. But in this way, Adam is a type of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 through 47, starts us off pretty well by showing us that that, that this is, Adam is a type of Christ. And let's turn over there together. Beginning in verse 45, it says, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, just looking at verse 45, that can be a little confusing. What does it mean, the first Adam, and what does it mean, the last Adam? Well, once again, it it all comes down to the root of this concept of typology, that the first Adam is referring to the physical Adam, and the last Adam is referring to a spiritual sense of of Adam. Now, how do we know that? We know that by continuing to read in verse 46. It says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So that right there is showing us that the first Adam it's referring to is it was made a living being, verse 45. Also, verse 45, Christ, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. So in, in a sense here, they're very similar because they're both, in a sense, a, a, um, a, a figurehead representing all of mankind. The first Adam, however, was a figurehead that was made out of the dust of the earth. And the last Adam, which is representing Christ, is, uh, is a spiritual sense, and is, it says in verse 47, is the Lord from heaven. But this concept in verse 46, I want us to pay particular attention to, because verse 46, this is critical to understanding how types and antitypes work. The natural is what comes first, and then the spiritual follows. So as we look at, at types in Genesis, we're going to see the, the physical beings. We're going to see natural things that are used to foreshadow uh, the spiritual revelation, which are the antitypes. 
So Adam, we know Adam when we turn over to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Adam is created in the image of God in Genesis. Now is that similar to, is that similar to Christ? Absolutely. But Adam was made of dust. We see that from the passage we've just read. However, Christ is made in, is the radiance of the glory of God and is the express image of God. We see that in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Let's read that verse together. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says, "...who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. You see, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's not just in the image of God. He is far more above that. He's not just made of of the dust of the earth and made to have the appearance of, of godliness. He is the radiance of God's glory. He goes so much more beyond the image of, of Adam being in the image of God. But then also in in Genesis 1 and 26, later in the verse, um, we see that Adam is given dominion over all the earth. Now this one, as I was studying for this, this blew my mind the way this, it shows a a wonderful contrast to what we read about for Christ. You see, Adam is given dominion over the earth by God. As he's placed in the Garden of Eden, he's given dominion over the creeping things, over the birds of the air, over the fish of the sea. He's given that dominion. And then because of his sin, he loses it. We see that in in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, with the fall of Adam. But see, Christ, he already had dominion as he was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he gave up his place of dominion, of authority. And then through living without sin, he regained his place of dominion. You see how that's exactly in the opposite direction of Adam? That Adam had that dominion and he lost it. Whereas Christ, he gave up his dominion and then regained it. What a cool image that, that we can see that, that Christ is that, that ultimate fulfillment of Adam. And then Romans chapter 5, uh, verses 12 through 21. Let's turn there together. This gives us several comparisons and contrasts with Adam and Christ. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as one man in sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So we see there that sin entered through Adam. As we continue reading, though, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. There's our word type, that Adam is a type for Christ. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So as we continue reading through that passage, we could go through, through verse 21, but for sake of time, what we end up seeing is, is four things that Adam brought into the world. And we see that through Adam, sin, disobedience, death, and ultimately condemnation were brought into the world. This is the first Adam. And then the last Adam, which is that through Christ, 
the exact opposite things are brought into the world. Righteousness as opposed to sin. Obedience as opposed to disobedience. Life as opposed to death. And justification instead of condemnation. Christ is a type, or Adam is a type that points to Christ. So this is, is still somewhat looking at what we would expect to see when we compare and contrast Adam and Christ. There's, uh, there's one other main thing that I want to point out too, though, that uh, as I was studying this, this hit me and, and I, I saw this and I had never seen this before. But um, I, I kind of want to take an aside and let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Many of us that are married, we know this passage well. Um, this is a, a depiction of husbands and wives and their relationship. And husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to respect their husbands. We get that from this passage. We also see that, that wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. We see so many things about how a marriage relationship is, is to work. And now, the, in this passage itself, we're not going to look through it uh, verse by verse, but if we were to read this, we would very clearly see that a marriage relationship is a type representing Christ and the church. And, and that's what we mainly see. Now, as we get towards the end of, of this passage, uh, however, uh, in verses 30 and 31, it says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And then begins a quote, taking us back to Genesis 2. And it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, so, this passage here that's using the marriage relationship as a type unto Christ, it's pointing us back to Genesis 2. So now if we follow that thread and go back to Genesis 2, maybe we'll find some interesting points that can be taken away from that. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's go back to Genesis 2. We see in verse 20, as we're, we're seeing Adam as he has been created before Eve had been taken from his side, it says there was none among the creatures suitable for Adam. Verse 20 says there was none suitable for Adam. You know, the amazing thing is there's none suitable for Jesus either because all of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is the only one that had not sinned and, and we are an unsuitable bride for, for Christ. As we keep reading, though, verse 21, you see, Adam was put into a deep sleep. I had never thought about the significance of this before. But Jesus was crucified. And, and Adam, being in a deep sleep, sleep is often used to, to be a symbol for, for death. And, and so sleep here, I, you know, maybe we're reading a little too much into it, but I think it's too clear to overlook when we look at what happens next. After Adam is put into a deep sleep, Eve is made from the flesh of Adam himself. A rib was taken from Adam. We all know the story. That a rib was taken from Adam and Eve was created from Adam's very own flesh. Now when Jesus was crucified, the exact same thing was happening in a spiritual sense. The church, you see, is made up from Jesus' body and becomes the very body of Christ itself. It's such a, a remarkable image as we see this. Um, and, and not to mention, Adam, he had been scarred in order for Eve to be made. And in the same way, Jesus was scarred for the church to have been established. 
And then not only that, but, but the two shall be made one flesh. And as we go back into Ephesians, we can start to see that, uh, that relationship of, of husband and wife and how it just it points to, to, to this very concept that husband and wife become one flesh just as Adam and Eve did. And just in the same way that we become one with Christ and we make up the body of Christ. So remarkable stuff about, about Adam and how he points us unto Christ. And there's so much that we can take from that. I'm sure uh, we've probably only begun to look into how Adam points us unto Christ. There's probably many things that I've missed. Um, but uh, for, for sake of time, we'll move on. Now the next one, this one to me was the hardest to, to understand, to wrap my brain around. Um, there are many mentions in the book of Genesis of a character that there's a lot of mystery around this character of who is this character and 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 how are they um, how are they given authority from God now the character I'm pointing out is it's the angel of the Lord the angel of the Lord first appears in the book of Genesis in chapter 16 verses 7 through 13 let's all turn over there because we're going to spend a little bit of time in this verse here Genesis 16, verses 7 through 13. And let's start reading. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. It's referring to Hagar. As, um, to set the context, Hagar has, has just conceived and is, has been run away by Sarah at this point. And so Hagar is, is running away and is distraught. But the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. So let's pause for just a moment and look at verse 10. So we're trying to ask ourselves, who is this character, the angel of the Lord? Especially because the angel of the Lord here speaks with authority that only God would have. The angel of the Lord tells Hagar here, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly. Who has that, that authority other than God himself? So what I've done here, as, as we see on the PowerPoint, I have two columns, and I hope the text doesn't get too small for us to read. But as we go through some of these passages talking about the angel of the Lord, we're going to see several mentions where the angel of the Lord is, is spoken of as if the angel of the Lord is God himself. And, and as if the angel of the Lord has authority that only God would have, just like we've read in verse 10. But in, in many other passages we're going to read, we, we see a clear distinction of the angel of the Lord from God. Um, now, sometimes uh, in, in certain passages, um, not to throw anyone off, there's going to be some mentions that don't use the exact wording, the angel of the Lord. Others may say the angel of God. Um, and so, so we're, we're going to look at both. And, and it would be my contention that they are referring to the same character, the same being. So we're going we're gonna to fill out this chart here as we go through several of these verses through Genesis. So let's put up the first one there. So we'll multiply descendants of Hagar. That's Genesis 16 verse 10. Let's continue on in verse 11. It says, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. So here we see in verse 11 that the angel of the Lord says, 
that the Lord, referring to Jehovah God, the God, the Father, it's referring to the Father as a separate being. So one verse later, we see this angel of the Lord not being God himself. So you see it's a mystery. And then as we continue on verse 13, it says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God that sees. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Hagar refers to to this angel, this being, as the God that sees. So we'll put that in the column of, of that this is God, that this angel of the Lord is God. Let's go on now to Genesis 21. Verses 17 through 18. Genesis chapter 21, verse 17. And God heard the voice of the lad, referring to Ishmael there. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation." So once again, verse 18, the angel says, I will make him a great nation. Who has that authority other than God? Well, it seems that, that if the angel has that authority, as he says, that, that maybe he is God. Um, also, as we continue on, Genesis chapter 22. Um, turn over to Genesis 22 with me. So starting in verse 1, now this is is shifting gears from Ishmael and Hagar here. This is looking at the story of of Abraham as Abraham is is getting ready to sacrifice Isaac. And verse 1 starts and says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So we have a very clear text that says God calls Abraham and is testing Abraham. But if we skip down to verse 11... Now we see a different being. We see this angel of the Lord called God, or uh, the angel of the Lord called to him, called to, to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay on your, your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So in a way we see that God calls to, to Abraham and then the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham with, with the same, same type of authority. They both call Abraham. Um, as a, a brief aside from the topic of the angel of the Lord, a, a separate study in and of itself on typology could be this, this sacrifice that Abraham was, was commanded to make of Isaac. And that certainly is a type that points unto Christ as well. Um, but I, I digress because for sake of time, we're not going to go through absolutely every mention of, of a type and, and anti-type pointing unto Jesus. But that would be another one for, for another day. Um, as we continue, though, in, in verse 12, um, the angel says, For now I know you fear God. So once again, the angel is talking about God, the Father God. Jehovah God, the angel is, is separating himself, making a distinction. Then as we skip down in the same chapter, verses 15 through 18, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And what ends up happening is he says that God is going to bless him. And then we see the repeat, repeating of the three blessings that, that are promised to Abraham 
the, the land, nation, and seed promises that are originally promised to him in Genesis 12, and they're repeated here. But the angel of the Lord is who says, God will bless you. So once again, we see a distinction between the angel of the Lord and from God himself. Genesis chapter 31. Uh, Genesis chapter 31, now skipping forward, verses 11 through 13. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob... And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see. All the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. The angel of the Lord says, as plain as day, I am the God of Bethel. Now, Bethel points back to a story from before with Jacob as Jacob is traveling to Laban, as he's just fled his home. Um, he's traveling to Laban. He takes, uh, takes a, a, a while to go to sleep on a rock, and he has a, a vision of a ladder, which also, once again, the ladder is a type pointing unto Christ. Once again, I'm not going to diverge too far off that, the beaten path. Um, but as, as we start looking through, we start seeing types everywhere. And, and it certainly is amazing to, to see that foreknowledge of God. But, but, but the angel of the Lord says here in verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. He says, I am God, essentially. Um, Genesis 32. Now, this account is one that certainly has a lot of mystery surrounding it. Um, but I just want to look at what the text says. So Genesis chapter 32, verse 24. This is the, the story of Jacob wrestling with... I'm going to say a being. Um, my thought is that this is referring to the same angel of the Lord that we've been looking at. But Genesis 32 verse 24 actually says that Jacob wrestled with a man. So I'm going to go ahead and put this category in that it's a separate person from God because he's referred to as a man. But later in the exact same chapter, verses 28 and then verse 30, verse 28, it says, And he said, Your name shall be no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So here the man says that Jacob had been struggling with God. And then also verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. So verse 24 says Jacob wrestled with a man. Verses 28 and 30 say Jacob wrestled with God. And then just to, to, to spin us for a loop, Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, point back to this text. Let's turn and, and read that together. Hosea 12, verses 3 and 4. It says, he took his brother by the heel in the womb, referring to Jacob, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. Synonymously there we see that, that it is, he, he struggled with the angel. He struggled with God. So once again, it's, it's a mysterious passage, but I, the, way I, the reason I place this in the same context as all the other mentions that we've looked at of the angel of the Lord is because it, it follows the same pattern, is that this being that Jacob wrestles with both has authority, just like God, and also is distinct from God in certain ways. Um, one other passage we're going to look at in Genesis 48, um, referring to the angel of the Lord, Verses 15 and 16. Let's read that together. Genesis 48, verse 15. 
Now, this is Jacob as he is blessing his descendants. And he, and he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. So this is, is as Jacob is preparing to bless the sons of Joseph as he's blessing Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, he says, God before whom my fathers. Then he says, the God who has fed me all my life. And then he says, the angel, using this term synonymously with God. So one more under the column of, of having the authority of God. Um, for sake of time, we're not going to continue on. We could continue on through the, just about the entire Old Testament and, and continue to find more appearances of this being, this angel of the Lord. There is a mention in, in the, the story of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Um, there's, there's mentioned further uh, in Exodus 23 as the angel of the Lord is sent with the children of Israel as they're wandering. Um, there's mention again uh, with the, the story of Gideon. There's really a fascinating mention of the angel of the Lord and, and how the angel of the Lord interacts with the parents of Samson, uh, Manoah and his wife. Um, that's a really fascinating one because they actually ask the angel of the Lord, what's your name? Who are you? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm, I am wonderful. My name is wonderful. Uh, and, and to me, that actually points exactly to, to this exact concept that the angel of the Lord has authority and is separate from God. And, and I think that points to the prophecy we read in Isaiah chapter 9 um, that actually says, uh, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So who am I referring to? Who is this angel of the Lord? So my thought is, is that there's only one that I know of that, that is spoken of in this way. There's only one that both has the authority of God and is God and is also man. And my contention would be that this is, in some sense, this is Jesus. Um, now, the angel of the Lord, we don't know in what form necessarily he would be taking if this was some form of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, but just to, to, to make sure that we're not way off base here, um, what are the alternatives? If the angel of the Lord is not Jesus, what are the alternatives? Well, one alternative is that the angel of the Lord is God himself. But then how do we answer the question, or how do we relate that to the passage we see? John chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Who is the, the picture of the Father God to Christians? The picture of the Father is the Son himself. And no one has seen God at any time. We would have to answer that question. If, if this angel of the Lord were God himself, then how is it that this angel of the Lord appeared to so many in the Old Testament? Well, another alternative would be maybe this is just some messenger of God. Maybe just an, an, an everyday angel. Um, maybe this isn't some special you know, Jesus at all. Then in that case, why does this person, why does this being speak as, as with the authority of God? We would have to, to, to combine those thoughts and be have to, we would have to explain why this angel speaks with the authority of God. Also, we would have to explain uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. 
me find my place in my notes here. So in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9, it says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you do not do that. So here we have John is, is falling down at the feet of an angel trying to worship the angel. And the angel says, basically, get up. Don't do that. I have no authority. I'm just a servant just as you are. So we would, we would have to explain why this angel of the Lord has the authority just like God. So my belief is that it is Jesus. Are there passages in the Bible that, that would support this thought? Absolutely there are. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, if you want to turn there with me, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel. This is a a well-known messianic prophecy pointing to Christ. And then it says, Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. If this angel of the Lord is Jesus then this passage supports that thought because this says right here that this Jesus, his goings forth are of old and have been from everlasting. To me, this points out that Jesus has been active as this form, this angel of the Lord. Um, But also John chapter 8, verses 58, um, as the Pharisees are questioning Jesus, asking him if he's greater than Abraham, he says his response is, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. Jesus is from everlasting. His goings forth have been of old and are from everlasting. Now, even if the angel is not Jesus, we haven't wasted our time studying this. Even if this is uh, not pointing to Jesus, in some sense, it is still a type of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, we know that because the only, uh, the only character that we ever see having both the the duality, the dual nature of being both God and man. The only one that we ever know is Jesus. And the Old Testament is a tutor. It brings us to the new law. Um, As we understand, that's that's what we've been looking at, is that um, even if this angel of the Lord was not Jesus, it is still a type pointing us to Jesus and helping us to be used to this kind of language, um, helping the first century Christians to be used to this type of language as Jesus had, had declared in his ministry. So at, at the very least, if this angel is not Jesus, it still is a type pointing unto Christ. Okay, um, to wrap up our study, um, our, our last type that we're going to look at is Joseph. Now, Joseph is, is the classic example of a type pointing unto Christ. Um, I really hope that this print won't get too small. I hope, it's, it's, you know, uh, I hope it can be um, seen from everybody uh, clearly. But uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go through quickly. Now, it's going to be somewhat rapid fire. Um, I'm not going to spend as long um, going through the life of Joseph. But we are going to touch briefly on, on several things. Now, I have scaled back my list considerably as we're going to look at Joseph. I found a, um, a chart online that is 75 reasons that Joseph is a type pointing unto Christ. Uh, I, for sake of time, we're, not, we're only going to go through 16. So these are going to be rapid fire, okay? Um, so first of all, uh, Joseph's story starts in the book of Genesis, of course, in chapter 30. Um, now, Genesis 30, uh, verses 22 through 24, shows us that, that Joseph was born in a miraculous way. 
Now, all of these are going to point to Christ in some way. Um, Joseph was born in a miraculous way because her, his mother, Rachel, was barren for many, many years and was unable to, to have children. But through, through the, the miraculous workings of God, she was able to conceive. Now, in the same way, of course, Jesus was born in a miraculous way as well, being born of a virgin. Um, now, Jesus and Joseph were also both shepherds. We see that from, from Genesis 37 and verse 2. We also see that from John chapter 10 and verse 11. They were both beloved of their fathers. Um, we know that Joseph was the, the favorite child of his father Jacob. Um, not that that was necessarily a, a, a good thing, but, um, but he was the beloved son of his father. Um, now, we also see in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13... Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Apologize. Um, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Pointing to Christ, saying that, that Jesus was the Son of the love of God. Matthew 3, uh, 3 verse 17 also says, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This happened at the baptism of, of Jesus, that he was referred to as God's beloved Son, just like Joseph was the beloved son of, of Jacob. Now Joseph was hated by his brothers for telling the truth. Um, we remember this, we've just studied this actually this past week, um, that Joseph went to his brothers um, and, and then ultimately came back with a negative report to his father. He was a tattletale of sorts. Um, but in the same way, John chapter 7 and verse 7, uh, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus did the same thing. He came to the world and he testified. He reported back to his father that the works of the world were evil. And he was hated for that. Um, Joseph and Jesus, they, were both, uh, they both foretold of their future exaltation. Um, one of those things that as we read it, we already know that, that Joseph is, is not on the good list with his brothers. Um, and then after all of that, you know, we kind of, it's almost an eye roll moment for us because he, he goes on and tells them these dreams of, of the, the sheaf of wheat bowing down or all the sheaves of wheat representing his brothers bowing down to his sheaf of wheat. Um, and then the, the story, the sun and moon and the 11 stars bowing down to his star. And he, he foretells this, but why would he do that? Well, in, in a sense, because it's a shadow of things to come. That Jesus comes and he foretells of his future exaltation, Matthew 26 and uh, verse 64. Um, they were both persecuted out of envy. We understand that Joseph's brothers, they were jealous of him because he was the son of his father's love. And they were, they were jealous. They had a very intense jealous feeling towards him. Um, but then also, of course, Jesus, he was persecuted out of envy as well. And uh, actually, Mark 15 and verse 10 um, is the image of Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate, it says that, that he perceives that the reason that Jesus was brought before him was because of the envy of the Jews. So he was persecuted out of envy. They were both sent out by their father to report back. Um, chapter 37, verses 12 through 14 of Genesis. Um, his father Jacob sends him to, to spy, essentially, to check in on, on the other brothers and to report back to, the, to, to him. And that's exactly what, what God did, is he sent Jesus to the world on a mission to report back to him. 
um, and they were both conspired against that they were going to be killed. Uh, we know this, that, that they, the brothers essentially wanted to, to kill him. They ended up throwing him into a dry well. Um, and, of course, the Jews put Jesus to death. Ultimately, they were conspiring against him to kill him. And in both cases, there was an authority figure that, that attempted to rescue them. Um, we see this with Joseph, um, that his oldest brother Reuben uh, had attempted to stop the violence from his brothers and ultimately was able to lessen uh, what Christ was able to, to or what, what Joseph was, was able to endure, ended up enduring. Um, but also Christ was, uh, was attempted to be rescued basically by Pilate. Um, Pilate at this point was, was trying to wash his hands of it and, and send Jesus on his way to not be punished, but that ultimately did not happen. They were both sold for pieces of silver. Um, now, an especially interesting thing about this is, if you remember back to the story of Joseph, um, Judah was the brother that had come up with the idea of, he saw traders coming up and, and he decided, I'm going to sell our brother. Uh, we're going to sell our brother for, for 20 pieces of silver. The interesting thing about that is Judah is the same name in the Hebrew form as Judas, who was Jesus' betrayer. I find that absolutely fascinating. And Judas ultimately betrayed uh, Christ for 30 pieces of silver. They were both tempted, yet without sin. Skipping forward in the story of Joseph, he had, been, had sold into slavery, and he became a slave in, in the nation of Egypt. He ultimately was sold to Potiphar's wife, or to, to Potiphar, and while he was there in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife, it says in verse 10, day by day she was tempting him, and day by day he was resisting. Now that's not to say that Joseph was always without sin. I'm sure that, that every, every man is, has sinned. And so we know Joseph at some point had sin, but yet we don't see this, the, the sin in his story. Um, Jesus, though, was, of course, tempted without sin. He was tempted in the wilderness, uh, led out into the wilderness to, to be tempted by the devil. We see that in Matthew chapter 4. But then also Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we see that Jesus was tempted and was able to, to not sin. And in the same way, Joseph is a type pointing unto that with Christ. They both suffered unjustly, took on another's guilt. Um, he, Joseph was framed. We remember that, uh, that Potiphar's wife uh, was seducing him, and he, he fled and left his garment in her hand. Ultimately, she said that he had come into her, and um, ultimately he was thrown into jail. He took on another's guilt. He was innocent, and he took on another's guilt. Of course, in the same way, Jesus was innocent of the blood that he, he had shed. He took on our very guilt. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Then Genesis chapter 40, we see Joseph in prison with, with two other prisoners, two other criminals at this point. Um, and then ultimately one was saved, the butler. If we remember that story, he interpreted the butler's dream and told him that he was going to be restored to the house of Pharaoh. Um, but the baker uh, was ultimately going to be lost. Uh, in the same way, Jesus was sentenced with two criminals, one on his right side, one on his left. And one of them ridiculed him and said, if, if you are the Christ... Call your angels and have them come and get you. Come get, come get yourself down from here. 
and he ridiculed him. The other, however, was the thief on the cross that we know of that, that asked Jesus for forgiveness. And Jesus told him that this day, surely you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus was sentenced with two criminals, once again, just like Joseph. They were both exalted after their suffering. Ultimately, Joseph was remembered, and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, and he was given a high place and under Pharaoh, and, and he was exalted. In the same way, Jesus is, of course, exalted today back at the right hand of God. Um, betrayers, uh, their betrayers both felt remorse. Uh, we see in for Genesis 42, we see the story of the brothers coming back to Egypt, and they're searching out because there had been a famine in the land. They're searching for food and water, and they come, and ultimately they don't know it, but they see Joseph, and Joseph knows that it's them, but they don't, see, they don't recognize Joseph because it had been so many years since they had done evil against him. But uh, un, you know, they, even though they don't know that this is Joseph that they're interacting with, it's obvious that they feel remorse for what they had done. And we see that in, in 42, verse 21. Um, but also Judas felt remorse, and he, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver um, and ultimately hung himself. And we see that tragic end to his story, but it's because he felt remorse in the same way that Joseph's uh, wrongdoers felt remorse as well. And then the very last one that we're going to look at between Joseph and Jesus is perhaps the most important. It's that Joseph forgave his betrayers. He forgave his brothers. And, and he ultimately did that because of their repentance. For sake of time, we're not going to go through those passages, but verses, uh, chapters 48, 44 and then 45 show us the repentance of the brothers of Joseph, and he forgives them. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 38. That's where it brings us now. Um, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. And it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But, but for the remission of sins... All they had to do is they had to repent, they had to be baptized, and they would be forgiven. They would have their sins, their evil doings, washed away, even though they were the ones that crucified Christ. In the same way, we're guilty of crucifying Christ because of our sins. We also need to repent, and then we can be forgiven in the same way. So Joseph is a type pointing unto Christ. I think that's one of the most clear uh, cut and dried, most classic examples of a type and an anti-type that we could see in the Bible. So I, I certainly didn't want to overlook that one. There's so many more that I could have gotten into. There's Melchizedek. Um, there is the, the punishment. We see Jesus clearly in the pages of Genesis with the punishment to the serpent. Um, we see J Jesus uh, mentioned as, as Shiloh, and that's certainly a mysterious uh, one as well. Um, I mentioned, you know, Isaac being an offering, uh, you know, that Abraham offered Isaac. Um, Jacob's ladder. There's so many points that we can see Jesus very clearly in the scriptures. We're not going to go through all of those this evening. Perhaps in the future that I might be able to put a, a part two of this lesson together, and maybe one day I could. We'll see. Um, practical applications. I didn't want to leave us off without talking about why is it that we've even talked about this today? What's practical? What's our takeaways from, from this evening? 
Well, there's really three practical applications I can see from studying typology. Number one, it builds our faith so that we can be demonstrated, to see the demonstration of the foreknowledge of God. God had a plan from the foundation of the world. He put that plan into motion all the way back into the pages of Genesis. He knew that he was going to send his son. And, and it builds our faith to be able to see that so clearly. But it can also give us a new perspective on how to read the Bible, the Old Testament specifically. It can give us a way to, to have a new a fresh set of eyes to look at the pages of Scripture, when we can look for something, a, a hidden message almost, that we know Jesus is in the, the, the words of the Old Testament, we just have to go out and we have to find it. So it gives us a fresh perspective on how to read the Old Testament, but it also helps us to grow closer to Christ on more of a personal level, because we can learn more about him. We can get to know his character more by studying the, the, the physical types that are pointing to, to the future spiritual revelation of Jesus Christ. So it can help us to grow closer to Christ. That's why we've studied this this evening, um, because we can certainly grow um, by learning more, by taking a deeper dive into the text of Genesis, and, and I hope that we've all discovered something today. Um, I've certainly discovered so much in studying this lesson. Um, I want to close by simply inviting you. If you've never been baptized, there's actually one more type that Genesis, that actually it goes through, and that's the flood. Uh, there were eight souls saved by water in the flood. That's uh, Noah and his family. They were saved through water. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 alludes to this. It says, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, in the same way that Noah and his family were saved through water during the flood... We are saved today through baptism in water. If you've never obeyed the gospel by doing this, there's never a better time than right now. I encourage you, if that's the case, to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.